Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. At the turn of the 20th century, Minnesota's entrenched Republican Party was challenged by the most successful radical third party in American history. From 1918 to 1944, the Farmer Labor Party was strong enough to wrest control of the state's government, away from the established political parties, forever transforming Minnesota's political climate. States are laboratories of democracy. That is to say that one of the great things about American federalism is that you can have experiments, policy experiments and political experiments and organizational uh, experiments. So there's a kind of dynamism and innovation that's built into American politics. And for me, that was really what was so fascinating about the Farmer Labor Party was it showed the, the possibility for dynamism and innovation that, that American federalism makes possible. Farmers in the 19th century and in the 20th century until the 1930s were hoping to politically fix somehow. Workers didn't have protections. They didn't have protections for hours. And more important, they couldn't organize. They would get stomped on if they organized. So farmers were insecure. Workers were insecure in terms of their organizational rights. Or so it seemed to people because they were distant from banks and from cities and from what seemed to be the centers of, of financial and economic powers. So they seemed to be essentially at the mercy of other people making big decisions about their lives. The Progressive Party takes over in Philadelphia's Convention Hall, the site of the recent Republican and Democratic conventions. Henry Wallace and his family draw loud cheers from 3,000 delegates. Wallace and Senator Glenn Taylor are unanimously nominated. The platform calls for peace negotiations with Russia, an end to the Marshall Plan, nationalization of public utilities, and repeal of the Taft-Hartley Act. The next night, Wallace enters Philadelphia's ballpark to accept his nomination. Refusing to reject communist support, Wallace blames the Berlin crisis on Truman's get-tough policies. Satirizing Dewey's acceptance speech, in which Dewey said he made no promises, Wallace says, I tell you frankly, that in obtaining the nomination of the Progressive Party, a nomination which I accept with pride, I have made commitments. I have made them freely. I shall abide by them. 30,000 enthusiasts who paid to get in cheer the nominees of the Progressive Party, Henry Wallace of Iowa and Glenn Taylor of Idaho. Today we have guest Johnny Axum, who is U.S. House candidate in Minnesota's 1st District. Welcome, Johnny. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so this will be your second time running for office. And I wanted to ask you right off the top, do you feel that the first run gave you enough name recognition to have a more successful run in 2020? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, you know, it, it's a rural district. It's uh, it's easy to navigate. Um, it's easy to get on the media here. Uh, you know, it's kind of a small town kind of mentality across even the, the larger cities. Um, really, it wasn't so much name recognition that we battled with. It was the propping up of a DC insider. 
that pretty much wiped out the rest of the field. Um, and he lost. He lost. Dan Feehan lost. Uh, we warned him. We said, this guy hasn't been here for 20 years. He's got a great resume. That's it. And he was picked by the DCC, handpicked to come here and and run. And he really didn't. He was a centrist. He didn't have any kind of inspirational message. Um, you know, the whole uh, working with the ACA and all this other stuff. Uh, you know, hey, I, I rubbed some people the wrong way because I approached my campaign with direct honesty. And I'm going to continue to do that. I told people that, you know, we've lost. When I say we, I'm speaking as a running Democrat. Uh, the Democrats in Minnesota have lost the rural vote. They've lost farmers. The party is called the DFL, Democratic Farmer Labor Party. And they've lost farmers, a lot of them, because the farmers know that Bill Clinton screwed them in the economy. The farmers know that they voted, a lot of them voted for Obama twice, and he let them down. But, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing, the way that I see it is that we, I tell people on social media and stuff that we uh, tell our children to be honest with us, as long as they're honest with us, we can always work through whatever mistakes that they've made. And then what do we do as adults? We make excuses and, and we act as apologists for our tribalistic groups and say, oh, we can't, we got to save face. You know, we can't lose face to the public and admit that we've done something wrong or that Obama let us down or that the ACA really wasn't what it was cracked up to be. We have to maintain this image that the mainstream media says what we must maintain. Otherwise, we're, we're out of sorts. And I reject that notion. I think voters will respond to honesty, to integrity, and to genuineness when you say, look, I understand. Look, I'm running as a Democrat, but that's because it's only 75% screwed up right now. The GOP is 100% screwed up. And I have to pick a side because, unfortunately, Greens and independents are not viable in my state. I did the numbers in 2018. I did them in 2016 again, uh, you know, uh, prior, and, and I tried giving them a chance. I know what I voted for in my ballot. I only voted for one Democrat. So don't come at me with vote shaming and who I support because I support third-party efforts. But I also see the strategy and the reality of giving up the castle to the people that we don't want to have it. Why should we do that? We helped build this kingdom, and now we're going to turn our backs on it and say, okay, just let them, because they're mean and they're bullies, we'll just let them have it. We'll go start building grass huts, and then we'll raise a force against them and bang on the, the castle walls and tell them we want them to do good stuff for us. No, we take our seats in the castle and we kick them out to get the hell out of here. We're done playing games with you, just like this young uh, Greta, what, I can't remember her last name, uh, She's a young 12-year-old, has Asperger's, and she's a climate activist. I know you've seen her on Twitter. We she's are going to end today um, with the words of 15-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who addressed the UN plenary session last night. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old, and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of climate justice now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. 
and if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. So, so that's the kind of attitude that we have to have. And people say, oh, well, that's Trumpish. It's more. No, what we're doing is... When you stand up to a bully, it's not being a bully, right? It, 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 when somebody is bullying you, they're trying to oppress you and suppress you and tell you you can't have this, you don't have rights to this. It, to stand up to them and say, hey, no, you, you, you don't get to treat me like that. And to even push them out of the way if you need to is not bullyish. Um, it, 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 I, I just, I, people need, and the yellow vest, Protests are starting to spark people's attention toward this kind of thinking that we're getting to the point of civil unrest in a lot of places in the world where we just can't take it anymore. The government says these are the most violent protests in Paris in over 50 years. 
On Saturday, 133 people were injured and more than 400 were arrested. The movement began three weeks ago on social media, with calls to protest attacks on fuel. But it's grown into a working-class revolt against the economic policies of President Emmanuel Macron. 27-year-old Jimmy Moreno came in from a nearby suburb. He works for the railways and voted for Macron. C'est le peuple, tout bêtement, sans opinion politique. Nous sommes dans la rue tous par solidarité. La politique, enfin, notre politique, elle est corrompue. The yellow vests that Jimmy and others are wearing have become a symbol. A law requires drivers to carry them, so they're easier to spot. Now, it's making their movement harder to ignore. On retrouve une part d'humanité envers tout le monde. Tout le monde redevient humain. On est là pour une seule cause. Tout le monde met ses différents de côté. Le peuple français. Exactement. Nous sommes le peuple français. Rien d'autre. What's going on now? What are they chanting? La démission de Macron. C'est ce qu'on souhaite. En premier, démission de Macron et changement de république pour être dans une vraie démocratie. The taxes are designed to push drivers off the road to lower emissions. But people who can't afford to live in cities see it as a tax on the poor. Macron's interior ministry responded to the violence by deploying almost 70,000 officers, including 5,000 in Paris. People are starving. They, they can't get medical attention. They can't go into the doctor with the sniffles. Their kids are hungry. And people are making record profits in businesses and shutting down factories. GM, $22 million to the CEO, and then they shut down 15,000 jobs. What the hell? Ford, 5,000 jobs, you know. I mean, it's just happening over and over and over, and we're okay with it because that's just the way the system works. There's always going to be the poor. No, there's not always going to be the poor if we reject it. If we wage war on poverty the way we wage war in Syria and other places in Afghanistan, we would be able to accomplish something. <laughs> no, Johnny, You know what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. We've reached a point where the income inequality in the country is absolutely untenable. It's worse now than it was in the 20s. And you're right. It's our fault. We let this happen. We have continually turned a blind eye, said yes to the lesser evils um, as the plutonomy, which really exists in both parties, have regulated to their benefit. Our markets aren't free. They're rigged. They're rigged to corporations. They're rigged to the 1%. I think that's irrefutably true. And unless we have something like Absolutely. you're talking about, like a yellow vest uh, protest, yeah, the French do one thing, right? Revolution, that's for sure. This will be their, if it gets, uh, <laughs> if this really gets up more steam, it will be their third massive revolution. Um, and I think we could learn from that. I don't, I don't disagree. I wanted to take a second and um, rewind a bit because you mentioned something that I would like um, for you to explain to the audience that's unfamiliar with Minnesota politics. So, um, in, in Minnesota, it's the Democrat Farmer Labor Party. So that's what you were referring to when you said the DFL. So can you explain uh, a little bit about who the DFL is and how they fit into the larger Democrat Party for folks that are um, unclear on that? Okay, well, the DFL is basically the state uh, organization for the Democratic Party. So any the California Dems, uh, New York Dems, that's just what it's called here. At some point in history, um, they had merged with, a, a, there was a workers' party, there was a farm and labor party, and they had merged together and come under one banner because at the time, the Democrats were fighting for working people and labor and, you know, uh, farmers and things like that. So it was a, it, it made sense. Um, 
Paul Wellstone was, you know, uh, a pretty well-known progressive uh, senator from Minnesota, was killed in a plane crash in 2002, the end of 2002. And uh, uh, this is the fifth anniversary of the deaths of Paul and Sheila Wellstone. And I just wanted to say a few words uh, on that. Uh, I was a friend of Paul's when I was in the House and on some of the important social and economic issues that I worked on there, he was the person that I went to to work with a member of the Senate. Uh, and I think that history will remember Paul Wellstone as one of the great senators of our time, not just because of his accomplishments, but more important uh, because of the extraordinary vision that he had. Uh, Paul believed very much that we could create a very different kind of world than the world that we're living in right now. And he was prepared and did stand up day after day on the floor of this Senate, taking on virtually every powerful special interest that exploited working people and low-income people and who led us to wars that we should not be fighting. He was a man who believed passionately in a world of peace, in a world of economic and social justice. And that vision that he brought forth is a vision that I hope nobody in the Senate, nobody in this country ever forgets. And one of the major characteristics of Paul Wellstone is that he understood that the way we succeed politically in this country is not simply by going out to the wealthy and the powerful begging for more and more campaign contributions, which is what happens so often in Congress. But he understood that the way you can win elections is by rallying ordinary people at the grassroots level. Either or the beginning of 2000, I think it was the end of 2002. Um, but he he espoused, he was the one who actually said, I represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. It wasn't Howard Dean. Howard Dean took that from him and used it in 2004. Um, and, and so uh, I was kind of, you know, uh, excited about this uh, when I first moved here. Um, and then he got killed and I kind of just kind of dropped off of the, you know, political scene. But basically, I mean, I want to say they're more progressive than what you see out of, uh, like, the DNC, if you were to make that comparison. I would like to say they're more progressive. However, I see there's a lot of towing the line. And they tried doing that in 2018. I got gaslighted for saying that I didn't think I would abide by the uh, endorsement because they have a, a party endorsement, but then they also have a public primary, if you can test that. Um, and I told people, I said, you know, because the the caucus process is much like the presidential delegation process, right? Only on a state level, where you have all these people that go in on the precinct day, they vote for uh, a number of delegates that are assigned for that precinct, so eight, and then you have four women and four men, and then you have four women and four men alternate. And so it's not a counting of 
the number of votes of people. It's you're electing delegates. Now, those delegates go to the next stage, the Senate district, where they're whittled down from 1,200 to like 300. And those 300 people, therefore, are commissioned with making the choice at the, con- at the congressional convention of who goes, to, who goes forward in November. 300 people, approximately. And, and when you do the math, that's less than 1% of the pop- voting population. It's just not democratic. I don't agree with it. It needs to be ended. I want to talk a little bit about um, the history of the Democrat Farmer Labor Party because they they absolutely are much more progressive. And I think a lot of folks don't know that their roots lie in, in a um, independent movement that actually endorsed Henry. Mr. Henry Wallace in the news again. He's out to form a third party. There is no real fight between a Truman and a Republican, both stand for a policy which can lead to war in our lifetime and make war certain for our children. The American people must have more than a choice between evils. They must have a chance to vote for the greatest good for the greatest number. Only through the organization of a new party in 1948 can the people of the United States voice their true desires and aspirations. To that end, I announce that I will run as an independent candidate in 1948 for President of the United States. And if you think back to that convention, that was when uh, the Democratic leadership, the DNC of that time, didn't want a really progressive candidate in that position. And Henry Wallace was quite progressive. He wanted to extend the uh, the New Deal to African-Americans, for example, he was very much um, fighting for farmers and the poor. So uh, after that happened, he ran as an independent. And I think, I believe, young uh, young Hubert Humphrey was a part of that. So uh, do you have any knowledge of its roots back then, more so, um, to have a discussion on that or no? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I have a tertiary, like, overview. Uh, okay. I haven't dug into... I mean, I do like I've read up on the history of the of the DFL and how they came together. Um, <clears throat> I haven't really dug into it because, to be honest with you, I'm not an organizational person. I just party, <laughs> religion, politi- you know, religio political aspects right, and tribalism right. are what keep us divided. Uh, Paul Wilson was probably the last one that was able because he even had to fight to gain delegates to win his first primary to be senator. And and he he was just able to fire people up at the convention, and he came through. But he wasn't like it wasn't like a sweep. Like he was just gonna you know sweep it. And um, when he then he started legislating, then he started leading. People fell in love with him, and uh, he started kind of setting the mold. He was then the kind of stakeholder for progressivism. Uh-huh. But when he got killed in two thousand and two, right before the uh, the election with Norm Coleman, to me, I've been here since then and involved in, in one of the bigger communities in my area mm-hmm. and uh, in astute to the politics. It has appeared to me that we've lost that kind of progressive independence and it fell to the wayside mm-hmm. to the DNC. As a matter of fact, yeah. Paul Wellstone's former uh, chief advisor or or political advisor, um, uh, what's his Ken Martin, mm-hmm. is a member of the DNC. 
And he's, you know, he's towing that DNC line. And I tell him, no, the tent can't be so big that you can't find the values when you walk inside. Mm-hmm. We can't spread it out so thin that we don't know who's who if you're trying to espouse um, policies that are to improve people's lives, you know, because we know that there are ways to improve people's lives and there are ways that aren't. So while I do appreciate the history, unfortunately, the present, at least in the last two decades, has fallen away from that kind of progressive history that the DFL. Now, I'm hoping to feed back on that. Okay. Right. Yeah. To give some, to breathe some air back into it, utilize that history mm-hmm. and say, look, this is what the party used to be about. Why aren't we about that anymore? You'll have a lot of Scandinavian influence there in Minnesota, too. So there's definitely some socialist leanings, I would imagine. Right. Exactly. And and I, and I kind of I, I wonder about that myself, because, you know, it, you would think that that kind of stuff goes hand in hand, but then they become assimilated. They're Americanized. They're conditioned to believe that, you know, you're supposed to be a capitalist prude that just takes everything from everybody. And if you're not screwing over workers, then you're not doing it right. Um, and sorry, but that's about the way that it works. You know, that's why I'm a horrible capitalist. I started two businesses. I can't, I can't make people work for me for less than their worth. And so it's hard to keep a business going. It's, it, you know, um, uh, you end up just going through a gig economy yourself. But I do believe in the tenets of the party. I believe in the, in the history and what they fought for, just like the movements that we're, we're looking at now, just like I believe in the Green Party's tenets, support their voice. Um, I just can't run on a ticket that's an absolute definite loss. No, I think that's a valid point. And I think the reason we see local Green Party candidates having more success here in California is because we do have a semi-open primary system. Like in my district this last election cycle, we had a Democrat and a Green Party person make it to the general. There was no Republicans in sight. So it's, it's, a, much, right. it's a much easier right. way to win a progressive... Uh, and, and I do tell people, I do tell people, like, they, like look, don't shame me. I know my state. Yeah. If you know your state and things can work and independents can run in districts and, and greens can win, then, then by all means do it. Right. Um, but you know, what we need to do is we need to kind of break down this, this religio political, uh, aspect of, mm-hmm. you know, screw it. I'm never going to associate with the organization whatsoever at all because that strategy isn't going to work. No, it's not going to work on We've either side. We've got to be able to come together. That's right. We have to coalition no. build. And I see, you know, a lot of folks shaming Green Party voters as well, which is a really bad idea. There's obviously a right. natural no, allyship hey. here. We are natural allies. We should, at some level, be able to work together and try to achieve change. And beating up on each other is just a bad idea. Right. And see, the thing is, like I said, I voted for more third parties than I, I voted only for one Democrat on my ballot in 2018. There was a state legislator who was uh, progressive and the only them running. So she got, the, you know, endorsement, whatever. Um, the rest I voted for third parties. I, I didn't. I, that was my personal vote. Right. So I'm not into vote shaming people. What I'm trying to tell people now is when we start, it's not about your vote. It's about your candidate support. If you got a candidate that you feel is so great, so wonderful, and you look at the real numbers in your district, you go and look at the vote tally. Don't not none of this, you know, make believe 
living on a prayer stuff. Look at the numbers, and if you don't have a chance as a third party at all, and you know it, then put your third-party efforts behind a candidate that you know you can trust and believe in within, uh, uh, you know, the do I hate saying it, but yes, we've got to storm the castle and, and get them elected. Because I'll tell you, I will break down and dismantle the system when I get there to open it up for proportional representation, you know, ranked choice type voting, making sure that we have fair election so that people can have smaller representation pockets like they have in England and other countries. Right. I mean, England's a parliamentary system, so it's much, uh, much easier for them to have coalition building amongst these different factions. Um, I wanted to ask you on that note, uh, so Dan Feehan, who is the gentleman that ended up taking the uh, nomination or the endorsement, I should say, from DFL, um, and then he lost in the general election. Am I to understand that you withdrew your candidacy after he got the endorsement? So in, in, in the spirit of that, so that he had a chance at winning or no, is that not true? Because I had read a news article on that and it well, wasn't really clear. There's. It, well, it went a couple ways. Okay. Uh, I announced in I announced in January 18th that I was going to forego the endorsement and go straight to the primary, and that meant <clears throat> that I was no longer messing with those delegates anymore. They could have their fun, pick whoever they wanted, and I was going to go to the the ballot on August 14th. That was my plan. I announced that in the news. However. As we move forward, the deadline for for registering to be on the ballot was June fifth, and it was you know three hundred bucks uh, put your name on the ballot, running a major party, and I could have done that. But as we got closer to that point, I started. I don't know. Hey, I'm doing this for a reason because I, I I know things, right? <laughs> I started feeling that it probably. Maybe, and I started talking to my friends who were still, you know, members of the campaign. I said, I have a feeling that Dan isn't going to be able to win this. And I have a feeling that if I go against him in the primary, well, I, and I will go against him on the truth, the facts. He doesn't belong here. He hasn't been here for 20 years. He came here with $250,000, all of which max donations, uh, you know, paid uh, by people back east. I was going to go after him and expose that and say he's not the right person. So I was going to tear him down a bit. And having done that and he loses, what are they going to do? Who are they going to go after? They're going to go after Bernie, right? It's Bernie's fault Hillary lost because he challenged her. They're going to go after Johnny. And they're going to say, oh, see, you shouldn't. Because they already did that uh, to about a couple of races when I was actually going to the unit, telling me stories about previous races where they believe that the person lost the general because they were challenged in the primary. So they already had that mindset going on. And I knew that I wasn't done. And I knew that the chances of me winning the primary because I didn't have the hundreds of thousands of dollars, then I probably wasn't going to win the primary. And it made sense to me, again, strategically and reasonably, realistically, to just not register for the ballot and let it go. And he lost because I work with farmers. I work with them. I know what they want. And when I start telling them about the things that I actually stand for, forget about the D and the R, let's just talk. 
they get fired up yeah. and they're like, yeah, see, that's what we need. We need somebody that's going to do that stuff. So it's right. just a matter of, of getting out and sharing the the information and also educating people on the, on some of the truth. You know, there's a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. and it, it's hard to navigate through that, but. So you, do you talk with these folks a lot about Medicare for all? I know that that is part of your platform and I'm also <clears throat> been looking, watching the polling on this and I see a plurality of Republican voters that also want Medicare for all. So I'm wondering if in uh, Minnesota first district, if it's a possibility that you would have universal support for a policy like that. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost confident. We have the Mayo Clinic here, the world-renowned Mayo Clinic. This is right. the home of Mayo Clinic. They have their other ones around the you know, not United States and the world, but this is the home of it. And, you know, I'm not going to say they support it because they're a, a healthcare provider. Um, and they, even though are a nonprofit, show corporatist meanings, which is something that we have an issue with. However, we have a huge medical community, right? So we have doctors and nurses and, and other care providers uh, that work for the mail and, and other places. And it's absolutely, I mean, we've got Nurses United. We've got, I, I mean, Minnesota, is, they don't understand you can't do it on a state level, which is one of the things, I mean, you can subsidize things on a state level and try to patch it, but you, you can't pay for uh, Medicare for all uh, on an ongoing basis on the state level. Hang on, you could in California. We have well, a state. Here's the thing: if you're doing but, it, if you're doing it in California, because California has a large gross, you know, uh, state product. Um, the the reason they have that uh, surplus is because other states have a deficit. Correct. We right. I think for every so, dollar we send to the federal government, we get like sixty cents back. So. It would depend on which state you're in. Exactly. That's why we don't advocate for things that call for big budgets like that right, uh, right. on any kind of state level because they're failures out of the gate. The, mm-hmm. the federal purse is open. It can yeah. spend on anything it wants. It doesn't. It's not constrained by revenue. It doesn't yeah. need to earn money in order to spend. Mm-hmm. And, and but again, uh, that doesn't mean us and the mayors and the state legislators shouldn't be advocating and standing up for Medicare for all for mm-hmm. their state. Right. You know, that's the whole point is they understand the benefit of what it's going to bring uh, to their states in economic and fiscal uh, ways, because it's going to lessen the burdens that they have to pick up the slack where things like the ACA are falling short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, let's be honest, the ACA became a massive handout for healthcare profiteering, whether you were an insurance company or a private <laughs> hospital. I mean, it's the minute they walked away from the public option. I mean, just, hello. Yeah, hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it, if that's not obvious by now, and, and it, it yeah. really hurts me because I'll tell you, I feel for people whose lives were saved by the ACA. I really oh, do. Oh, yeah, it did some but good stuff. I also, no I, I, I know, but I appeal to them. To not be so selfish. Right. Because while it may have saved them and their friend or uh, a family member, there are 50,000 people dying every month because they don't have adequate medical attention. Right. And that look, is And even then, fact. the care that they would have had under Medicare for All would have been even better than what they got from the ACA. So that's irrefutably right. the case. Yeah. Um, right. So one of the other things I know you support, um, you're big on women's rights. Uh, you, you're a self-described Me Too guy, which I sort of like. <laughs> I like that. Well, I'm not self-described. I'm a Me Too victim. 
Oh, wait, I don't know about this. I'm a this. Me Too victim. Oh, tell us, are, would, yeah. are you okay talking about that publicly? Well, no, that's fine. I'm, okay. I mean, I'm a victim of sexual abuse. Oh, I, my goodness. You know, um, I, I experienced, it, experienced it in my life. And uh, one of the things that the Me Too movement did for a lot of men, especially cis, cisgender males, mm-hmm. um, is uh, remove that shame stigma that goes along with it and saying, you know, look, you're right. See, it's not my fault. I don't need to be ashamed of it. This is, I, I'm a victim of uh, toxic masculinity, damn it. I'm not, you know, I, I shouldn't be um, being ashamed. And, and then, so when the women are speaking out, and mm-hmm. you know this has been going on for women, against women, because it's in our, it's in our media, it's in our, you know, it's in our, um, uh, uh, shows or movies, it's, it's, it's normalized, right? I wrote a paper in college, the same college I was going to, Paul Well, and I saw Paul Wellstone, uh, my journalism class, one of the final papers I wrote was on the objectivity of women in media. And that was before uh, runway models were allowed to be, you know, uh, um, have weight on them. And we were dealing with the eating disorders and things like that. So I have a, a very very uh, uh, keen understanding of the victimization by men uh, throughout history um, on not just women, but men as well. And, but especially women. I mean, I've said it more than once that women are the most marginalized demographic in the history of the planet. Uh, It's that goes without being said. And um, the fact that we're living in the 21st century and still battling with this, kind of idea of equality, uh, it, it boggles my mind because just like racism boggles my mind. I mean, I just, you know, I see color, I see it, it's beautiful. Okay, great. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not one of those people, I don't see color. You know, I, I see it, it just doesn't affect my thinking about who the person is um, in the way, in a negative way. Uh, I, I just, it doesn't click that way in my brain. And I feel bad for people who, who aren't able to overcome hatred based on those shallow uh, aspects of things. But I also understand that a lot of the treatment that comes from, uh, a lot of treatment toward women comes from what's being passed down. And unfortunately, not just by their male role models, but by the females in their life who don't teach them what a strong woman looks like. You know, being a single father for the last, you know, seven years with a growing teenage boy who is out there. He's good looking. He's got more girlfriends than I ever had growing up, you know, and trying to teach him the respect and responsibility that goes along with being in relationships with somebody else. Um, it's a challenge, especially when you have everything with social media and, and, um, they have their own anxieties and depression and, and the, then the people that they're with, his girlfriend, she's damaged. She, you know, his current one, she's damaged good. She's a Me Too victim. She's got all these problems. And, and I mean, quite frankly, he's 18. You know, they're, they're too young to be in the relationship they're in as far as I'm concerned. They need to get themselves straightened out because otherwise they, we, we perpetuate this ongoing mistreatment of each other where we think we deserve to be abused because that's what we were raised around. And until we break out of that and realize that, wait a minute, no, I deserve better than this. You asshole, stop treating me that way. 
uh, I'm done with you. You got it? I don't care who it is, male, female, boss, uh, friend, political friend. It doesn't matter. When people are stepping on you, shitting on you, treating you like shit, gaslighting you, guilt tripping you, gossiping about you, backbiting about you, that's not a friend. That's not somebody that is a positive experience in your experiential universe. And unless they're willing to change their behavior themselves, for themselves, hopefully, uh, to better uh, understand what it means to get along with other humans, then you just need to get away from it and remove it. Say, I can't deal with that. You know, I, I mean, I appreciate that question because people don't understand that men can be very uh, in tune with the female struggle. Um, you know, cis male, whatever can, they can have those same uh, uh, experiences and understand the uh, struggle of women and stand next to them yeah. in their fight for equality well, yeah, without having to be a woman. That's especially true if you've ever been abused or molested or in any way um, degraded. Uh, so, yeah, do you, uh, I wanted to ask you, do you also support the ERA? I believe that- the, yeah, I, I have, you know, you go through all these things, but I know that I have, uh, I'm on the list for the, uh, Minnesota, uh, ERA. Mm-hmm. Now, so your, your state I, already ratified the ERA. I think they need one more state in order for it to go back to the federal government. Uh, and it's just crazy to me that it's been, you know, decades now that this has been going on and we still haven't passed it. I, I, just, I just can't believe it. I, I don't mean to, yeah, it's a, it's one of those ridiculous nervous laughs, you know, to cope with the ridiculousness. Because I just can't fathom, well, just like, hey, we're going to make lynching a federal crime. Hey, nice of us to catch up with, you know, a hundred years of law. I mean, some of these things are ridiculous that that we even uh, are are addressing. But what's even more ridiculous is that we actually have people resisting them. Uh, Right. That's what kills me, is that we have people resisting things. Um, especially on, on, on some of the most, uh, ridiculous basis, you know, um, we can get into Christian conservatism and, and LGBTQ rights and, and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I, what does it hurt you if that person is doing what they're doing? Just don't you worry about it. What is it any of your business? Just like, I don't like you going around, uh, Santa Claus and it up for, uh, three months of the year because I ain't into that. But you hear me slamming, you know, uh, 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 rallying up against the, the state capital saying, I don't want to see Santa Claus in my neighborhood no more because it offends me. You know, look, I get it. People have their expressions and they have their, I used to be a Christian minister. You're going to get accused of being on a war against Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I think the war, I think Christmas is going to win the war on Christmas yeah, this year. I, yeah, it does every year. It, it seems to win, is. you know? And and it, it just gets more and more ridiculous to me, the things that people say they don't want their government to be involved in their lives, but they use their <laughs> that very government to restrict the liberties of other people. It's so true. <laughs> and, they don't, and they don't understand why some people are losing their minds. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they're lucky. They are lucky that the left are not the violent people. Mm. They are lucky Mm -hmm. because there are a lot more of us that see the truth of what's going on, but most of them 
I don't, they don't take up the mantle. No. You know, I'm, I, I don't want to any kind of uh, insinuation that people aren't concerned or anything like that, but they're too busy working. Most of them, right. <laughs> Trying to freaking survive to even be involved to know what their rights are within their community or to vote or anything like okay. that within election. Well, and then on top of that, no, that definitely. And then, and then on top of that, you have the uh, orchestrated dismantling of our education system, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, Hey, I, I, I share this a lot because it's more than a comedy, but idiocracy, the great dumbing down is a reality that we're living today. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. The movie Idiocracy yeah. and yeah, at that business. As the 21st century began, human evolution was at a turning point. Natural selection the process by which the strongest, the smartest, the fastest reproduced in greater numbers than the rest, a process which had once favored the noblest traits of man, now began to favor different traits. Most science fiction of the day predicted a future that was more civilized and more intelligent. But as time went on, things seemed to be heading in the opposite direction, a dumbing down. How did this happen? Evolution does not necessarily reward intelligence. With no natural predators to thin the herd, it began to simply reward those who reproduced the most and left the intelligent to become an endangered species. Having kids is such an important decision. We're just waiting for the right time. It's not something you want to rush into, obviously. No way. Oh shit, I'm pregnant again! Too many damn kids. Thought you was on the pill or some shit. Hell no. Must have been thinking of Brittany. Brittany? No, you There's no way we could have a child now. Mm-hmm. Not with the market the way it is, no. God, no. That just wouldn't make any sense. Come on over here, bitch. He don't care about you. Yeah, well, there must be something he likes over here. It doesn't mean nothing to me, baby. Oh, shit. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Well, we finally decided to have children, and I'm not pointing fingers, but it's not going well. And this is helping. I'm just saying that before I have in vitro, maybe you should be willing to... It's always me, right? Well, it's not my sperm count. (laughs) Yeah! I'm gonna fuck all of you! That's my boy! Cleavon is lucky to be alive. He attempted to jump a jet ski from a lake into a swimming pool and impaled his crotch on an iron gate. But thanks to recent advances in stem cell research and the fine work of doctors Krensky and Altshuler, Cleavon should regain full reproductive function. Put your hands off my junk! Unfortunately, Trevor passed away from a heart attack while masturbating to produce sperm for artificial insemination. But I have some eggs frozen. So just as soon as the right guy comes along, you know. And so it went for generations. Although few, if any, seem to notice. Yeah. At that, there's actually a, a clip of just the great dumbing down on YouTube. And I've said it many times because it is absolutely the point. Of, what do we have now? We have millennials doing exactly what was in that video, saying we're going to hold off on having kids. 
because we want to make sure we can afford it. We don't have a house of our own. We blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. Maybe the climate, you know, whatever the reasons are, this generation is saying, huh, going to hold off on kids. They can't and, afford it. And you start seeing this perpetuated and exponential decline of human intellect mm-hmm. into this, you know, uh, virtual world of misinformation where they're easily manipulated and puppeted around to doing whatever the people in control want them to do. Yeah. Um, I can be one of them. <laughs> right. You know, the, well, the unfortunate reality is I don't, I don't understand how, you know, I have a, a niece who just uh, turned 21 this year and I look at her financial situation and it scares the shit out of me. Uh, I don't see how these kids are supposed to be able to afford an education or let alone, they can't even pay rent with what they get paid in their jobs. Are you kidding me? And Exactly. I mean, I was lucky enough to attend the University of California when the tuition was still 500 bucks a quarter. I mean, we've defunded mm-hmm. the system. There's no money left. They've totally defunded it and made it absolutely astronomically yeah. expensive. Uh, and, and if you're making there minimum were jobs wage, here. You, can't, you can't pay, you cannot pay on minimum wage for rent in the city of Los Angeles. It's, it's mathematically impossible. No. And you're talking about a kid no. that's and there are jobs advertised here because they're in school. So now we're not even working full time, we're right. working part time, you know? And there are jobs posted here where the requirement is a bachelor's degree making under fifteen dollars an hour. <laughs> God, I'm not joking. Me. There are jobs posted. I've Holy seen them. I, I'll take clips of them in the future and share them with you. Of that's people, that's the requirements are at least this much. Even an associate's degree doesn't matter. That's still two years of school. Of that, that's insane. We're looking at about twenty five thousand dollars, even at a community college. That makes 12, no sense. Twelve thousand a semester. I mean, my part time job I had when I was at university, which was a no skill job, I was making eighteen dollars an hour. This was you know twenty two years yeah. ago. You're kidding. And here we are, and they're making yeah. less money with, and they're requiring a bachelor's degree. That's that's absolutely batshit crazy. Right. It is. It is. So here people are told to go to school to get to be able to market yourself. Because now you can put all these neat little things by your name and then you get out of school. It's not like it used to be. And this is where I I mentioned this about people understanding and getting out of this religio political tribalism. And when you say what Trump tapped into was this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was when one person could work and support their entire family, right. have two cars, go on vacation, a house, uh, three kids, and everybody was happy and they had retirement. That's right. That is what Trump was tapping into. Oh, That's what MAGA is all about. MAGA is all about and that and the inequality. Yeah, you're right. Right. And so now he's not doing the right things about it. But yeah. when you when you talk to people about what it was, why Trump wanted uh, and and where the the message has to come from, and you you start putting to them the the real things that fix it instead of these tax breaks for the rich, trickle yeah. down economic shit that doesn't work, and you start giving them the 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 look right the lowdown on some programs that used to work right like the the um, conservation corps that worked. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the greatest. It fell short in many ways. It didn't provide for uh, people of color like it should have, you know, indigenous people. However, in concept, it worked and it did work for the people that it helped. If we expand on that idea, then the proof of that program showed that it boosted the economy. Mm-hmm. So that's what like the job guarantee is. 
And so when hang you, on, Johnny, you know, let me interrupt the, you for a second. Yeah. I do want to talk, um, I want to ask you about that because I know a big part of your platform is the federal jobs um, guarantee program. Can you uh, mm-hmm. walk the audience through that? Because I don't think, um, I don't think a lot of voters are clear that that sort of a idea exists and what it entails. And I think it's a really uh, important part of, <laughs> of how we can solve the problem. So can you walk us through that? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because it is, as a matter of fact, it's my number one policy item. It's something I've believed in for many, many years, but didn't know what the nuts and bolts were until uh, Pavlina Chirniba, Stephanie Kelton, the Levy Institute, and Sanders Institute started putting out their research and their development for policy over it. But here's how it works. And it's amazing because we know, again, the federal government doesn't need money. It has money. So, again, this is a federal program. It's, it's funded from the federal level. That's the only part that it deals with, the federal level. The, the federal government pays me 40 hours a week. I stay in a weekly paycheck, $15, uh, $15 an hour, a guaranteed of no less 40 hours a week, right, if you want to work. And what are the jobs? Well, the jobs now are administered on the local level. We're not talking about rebuilding our highways and our schools. That's a completely different bill. That's a completely different investment. It calls for skilled labor. It calls for people who make 50, 100 bucks an hour. That's a completely different bill, so don't conflate the two. Uh, federal job guarantee is a permanent, ongoing employment buffer stock where nobody who is unemployed that wants to work will ever have to be without a job. Some of the uh, shelf jobs, as we call them, the kind of jobs that are kind of always there in a community would be things like childcare, elder care, um, uh, maybe more educational paras, uh, environmental restoration, cleanup projects. Uh, we have rivers going through our area that always need cleaning up, things like that. A lot of people volunteer for that. Why have them volunteer when you can be putting people to work? Um, and it's not digging ditches and filling them in. It's the administration, and this is where Fight for FGG, the organization I founded um, a few months ago, the, the purpose of that organization is to start pulling these community commissions together. So in your local area, you're going to come together with some people who say, hey, we're, we're all for a Green New Deal. We're all for a job guarantee. Um, we're all for this expansion that's going to be happening through the progressive movement. One of the things that has to happen is we need to start having people come together and start talking about what kind of jobs we're going to give people right here in our little town. And so you have people come together. You can invite people from the, um, you know, city council and mayor and stuff. Those aren't the people that run the show, though. They are there to help facilitate what kind of jobs you guys are going to need because the program doesn't pay for materials, land, buildings. So there's still going to be some investment for certain things, if you wanted to have a daycare center, there's going to have to be a building used. So the city's going to have to come together and find a building, public building that can be used for uh, a public daycare center. But the, the people like me and you, we're the citizen commission that's going to sit together and say, okay, hey, a, a guy comes in. I like using this example because you don't think of art as being something that would be employable. Why not? Because we know that beautifying downtown areas brings people in. It's, it's, it, you know, there's no studies on it. We just know that it's good, right? We actually do it here in Rochester. There's people that go around and paint things. Well, 
why can't a, 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 an artist come in and say, hey, I'm going to school. Uh, I'm an artist. I'd like to paint canvases around the community. The community picks the canvases. You give them a list here over on this corner, this southwest wall. And they provide, you know, the paint, whatever that the person needs. And that person goes and he paints murals around the community or a handful of people do it. It's a big enough community. It, it's what if he sells the commission and the commission, the citizen commission says, Hey, you know, that's great. We know the painting, uh, you know, uh, over things is, is a nice thing. And, uh, we can afford the, the amount for the paint supplies out of our budget. That'd be great. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, we can create five positions for people to go around and paint, uh, these canvases around town. There you go. That's it. You guys, you agree what you want to do now. Maybe in a smaller community where you don't have buildings like that, you're not worried about something like that, but maybe you're worried about cleanup more. Maybe you have dilapidated buildings and you want to hire people to come in and clean up. You know, um, a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions and they're going to say, well, how does this not work for, uh, work for welfare? Well, because it's not. That's the opposite of what we're doing. We're actually giving people work so they don't need welfare. There's a big difference. We mustn't forget the economic frustrations that help fuel Trump's election. For too long, too many Americans have faced lousy jobs or no jobs. One answer, a guaranteed job at a living wage. Republicans continue to push for work requirements for recipients of Medicaid, food stamps, and public housing benefits. But the real problem is there aren't enough adequately paying jobs to go around. Even today, with a low official unemployment rate, millions who work part-time jobs want full-time work. Millions more are too discouraged to look for work, having endured the brutalities of job discrimination for far too long, or unable to move to where the jobs are. And a large and growing number of jobs don't pay enough to get people out of poverty. At the same time, a lot of work needs to be done. Greening our nation's infrastructure, caring for the elderly, teaching in our public schools, adequately staffing national parks, you name it. So why shouldn't the federal government create jobs and connect them directly to people who can't otherwise find one with decent, predictable hours and at a living wage? An added plus, the availability of such jobs would give more bargaining power to many low-wage workers to get better hours and wages, because if they don't get them from their employer, they'd have the option of a public job. In this way, a federal job guarantee would raise the floor for job quality nationwide. And a job guarantee would act as a giant economic stabilizer during downturns, when the first to lose their jobs are usually the most economically marginalized. Can we afford a job guarantee today? Yes. It's estimated to cost around $670 billion in its first year, $30 billion less than the defense budget. But that tab would quickly shrink. With more people working at better wages, Americans would have more purchasing power to buy goods and services. This would lead to more hiring by the private sector and eventually less need for the federal job guarantee. More people working would also generate more tax revenue, partially offsetting the direct cost of the job guarantee. Additional savings would come from fewer people needing public assistance. 
The Center for Labor Research and Education at Berkeley estimates that the federal government now spends over $150 billion a year because workers aren't earning enough to get out of poverty. So doesn't it make more sense to use this money to create guaranteed jobs at a living wage? So let's think beyond Trump to what Americans need. Few things are more important than a decent job. Full employment through a federal job guarantee makes sense for workers, for the economy, for America. Okay, we lift people up. It's $15 an hour uh, minimum. Uh, medical benefits, of course, this is uh, notwithstanding that Medicare for All isn't passed because you don't need it if Medicare for All is, but the, this is if, if it's a standalone and medical benefits and paid leave. So you get paid vacation and sick leave. All those things start immediately. You're not waiting 60, 90 days, a, a half a year before your benefits start kicking in. You start getting a paycheck right away. Your benefits start uh, accumulating or kicking in right away. And you just go to work. Now, if, if you find a job that pays you better and you're moving along, because these aren't permanent jobs either. This is not the purpose is to permanently employ people. This is to give people who don't have work an opportunity to stay employed, help their community, and move into a better-paying job with experience and things like that. And so as they, quote-unquote, graduate out of the program, let's say somebody goes and gets a job, and after two months, that job doesn't work out. Well, they just turn right back up, show in the office the next day, and say, yeah, that job didn't work out. Is my old position open? No, sorry, Johnny. Uh, somebody, you know, got that. All right, well, what do you got going on today? I'll go clean up the river for a couple of weeks until something else opens up. You know, whatever the case is. But you're never going to have that, that stress and that worry of, of being out of work. You'll always know that this is a, a budget that you can, you know, live with, 600 bucks a week. Uh, what can you live with under that? And is there two people in the house? What, whatever the case is, you always know that, that that's that stable. Now, here's the other thing that the job guarantee does. It automatically, immediately gets rid of the fight for 15 issue because we now just set a floor, a public option floor for wages. Every private company now, every Walmart and Amazon and everybody who's not offering $15 an hour minimum with medical and paid leave at the standards that we set they're at jeopardy of losing employment because this isn't just for people who are unemployed. It's for people who are underemployed. If you're working for $10 an hour, 30 hours a week and can't get by, you go to the work program and you say, I want a job because I want to eat and I don't want to starve anymore. And then you leave your job and guess what? Well, well, well isn't that going to hurt business? Who cares? If the business can't take care of its employees so they can actually take care of themselves, then the business doesn't deserve to exist. Sorry. And if it's someone like Walmart or anybody like that, <clears throat> I'm not sorry one bit because they can go out of business and we can start looking at replacing those with worker-owned business models. You need a grocery store in your community, out of the work program, out of the job program, you start working with people who are maybe interested in that kind of, that line of work. You get <clears throat> people like Richard Wolf, get him on the horn and say, hey, I got a community wants to get one of these, uh, you know, worker-owned business things going. Come help me with that. And he'll... 
Suppose you had, which we already have around the world, something called a worker co-op, a situation in which a business is owned and operated by all the people in a democratic way. So they sit around and decide, like we do with political decisions, how we produce, what we produce, what technology we use, and how we distribute the fruits of what everybody helps to produce. They would never give billions to one person while everybody else can't send their kids to school. Yeah, because a cooperative production system. You have expropriated the wealth. Because when we get to that system where the workers sit around and decide who gets what, you've literally changed the system and taken it away from the people who've got it now. You Absolutely. have expropriated you've changed it the by system. force. You have done it by force. Not necessary. I'm not going to give you my wealth. You're going to take it off me. But you agree that we live in a democratic system uh, and if the majority uh, no, of the people no, want to change it, got then you. you would go along with it. Otherwise, no, you're no, not no. supporting the democracy. You are taking it off me. As somebody with a gun, a police officer, will come to my house and take off that wealth. It's expropriation. That's what you're talking about. I'm talking about letting the people in this country and any other country decide whether they would rather have an economic system that functions democratically at the workplace or keep the one we have, which produces this inequality that puts us at each other's throats. Okay, we'll agree. Just run right over and say, oh, there's an opportunity to, to implement socialism somewhere. Let's do it. And we start pushing people into jobs that are based on equitable employment. And the jobs that aren't fall by the wayside. Eventually, the market, as they say, corrects itself, where the capitalists finally realize their ride is over, Labor is no longer going to put up with their crap, and there's other options out there. So they either need to up their game and start paying people so they can have a wonderful, decent life and eat without struggling and worrying about if they get a flat tire, they're going to lose their job because they can't afford to get their tire fixed. That's ridiculous. People have to worry about that kind of stuff. And they're working 40, 60 hours a week. They're busting their out. Well, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Hey, lick my bootstraps. I've done that enough. Universal basic income is a policy where everyone in a society gets a certain amount of money, free and clear, to meet your basic needs, start new businesses, go back to school, and do whatever you want. And in my plan, the freedom dividend would give every American citizen between the ages of 18 and 64 $1,000 a month. Universal basic income is a policy that goes all the way back to our founding fathers. Thomas Paine was for it. In modern times, Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman was for it. And a thousand economists signed a letter saying it would be great for our economy and society. And the time for universal basic in income is now because our economy is changing due to new technologies and we need to change with them. So the reason behind supporting a universal basic income is because we're approaching a stage, if we're not already there, where the jobs that are, are going to be able to sustain a, live, a livelihood for your average American are disappearing like the, and they're not going to come back. And I agree with a basic income that cares for people who need it, but I don't agree with the universal part where it just gets out put out to everybody. Not only is the, um, the, the fiscal aspect of it irresponsible when you do the work, but I'll tell you what I will do. I do have an article by Pavlina Cherniva where she answered this specifically to somebody who is a, a staunch advocate of the UBI, who obviously knows more about that side of the UBI than I do. And I'll share that article with, or that response from her. I tweeted it a couple times. The reason that I agree with Pavlina, okay, and, and this is where I've done my work as well, 
I don't just, you know, uh, uh, subscribe to what one person says, but um, because when you start looking at the more macroeconomic aspects of how a UBI interacts, yes, I understand the purpose, you know, saying, why can't we have both? Why can't we have a UBI and a federal job guarantee? Why can't everybody just get 20000 bucks a year as a base income, and then if they want to work, they can go to the jobs guarantee? Well, here's the problem, and here's some of the problems that she brings up in that, is that it doesn't take into account some of the um, some of the cost issues that go on when you start putting a UBI, you start pumping this money, and you start giving people this money. Well, there's going to be pushback, first of all, from the other side. They're going to tell you that they have to uh, balance that out. They're going to give you this $20,000, but then you're going to have to be responsible for things like your own health care, your own education, your own this, your own that. That's not entirely true. Well, I know you don't think that's true, but that's exactly where uh, where proponents of the UBI have even come from. Not all of they them. They say the UBI is going to be the save all because it replaces the safety net and we no longer need it. Hang on, not that's not entirely true. If you look at folks like Andrew Yang, they're not saying UBI would ever replace a Medicare for all program. I know, I said some. That's okay. why I said some proponents. So not all of them. I know what I said some. But th- when you have some proponent in the mix then that's going to be part of the conversation when you start legislating it, when you start drafting up policy. I mean, as it is, we have a job, we have three job guarantees that are not job guaranteed. Okay. Rocon is job guarantee. I reject 100%. I've told them about it. I don't accept it. Our organization won't accept it because it is a corporate giveaway. Okay. All you have to do is start reading the first paragraph of it and it's subsidizing corporations to give people jobs. That's what we already do, and it doesn't did work. It. We just no, did that with tax cuts, bro. Come on. Well, tax cuts are it's never not going to work. And that was never going to work because no. But it, I mean, it's the same concept, right? It's yeah. he's whatever the incentivization is is to give people jobs in in the area that he feels is. Uh, but it's not a job guarantee because mm-hmm. that's not what a job guarantee does. A job guarantee does the things I just explained. Okay. It sets that baseline. You know, that's the other thing that a UBI. Now, again, you're talking the two working together. Most of my conversations Correct. deal with people who are talking about one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one I, or the I other argument is easy to shoot down. I totally agree with that. Right. Because That's the UBI isn't designed. Down because it's not going to give you enough money to live off of. If the UBI program gives well, every not only that $1,000 a month, 12000 a year, you can't live off that. It's not designed to right. replace. And not only that. It leaves out all those other things that we talked about with the job guarantee about rebuilding your communities, um, you know, giving people uh, uh, purposeful work that want it because not everybody wants to just sit around and collect a thousand bucks a month and play video games. The, um, you know, okay, we, we, we understand the either or arguments not there. But when we talk about, look, I am a huge proponent of the BI, the basic income. That's, that, that's focusing, giving people that need it. Um, because wh- why do you need to give, why do you need to give a hundred or a thousand bucks a month to somebody who makes a hundred thousand a year? Why? They don't need it. They're just going to put it in their bank account and it's going to sit there. And then that's going to add to the wealth and income inequality. That's the other thing. Why I don't appreciate why I don't support a UBI is because you're giving that thing to everybody. So the levels just rise for everybody. So the guy who makes a hundred thousand now he's making a hundred and one thousand. And the person who's making twenty thousand is making twenty one. You know, or or you know what I mean. They're they're making that that uh, uh, that little extra each each month, 
And most of that money that the poor people are making, that all that grant money is going toward necessity, just living. But for the people who don't need that money, they get to add it to their savings and their reserves, put it in their retirement, add it, give it to their kids, and it perpetuates that whole um, wealth and income inequality that we're trying to end. So that's another huge point why the U needs to be removed from it in my opinion. All right. Fair enough. Um, I agree with, with most of that. Not all of it, but most of it. I think that's a very um, well thought out And I will share response. that article with you and, and, and we yes, can talk do. about some of yeah. it some more. You well, I'm know, definitely yeah. open to conversation on this. It's not something, I think it's something that we're just starting to develop as a society, but I think it's a plan that definitely has values only because at the rate we're now, headed, let me, let it me would leave a lot of the this. income inequality. Let's, so even if you have people that are making yeah. minimum wage, that extra thousand a month is could literally make the difference between being able to pay but rent or what not. What is the capital? You know? I, do, I do see something like that for a future, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, like say 20 years down the road, once we've corrected our, our, our civilization and we've gotten people on track to saying, Hey, now you guys see how things work. And we, and we have these, these worker social, you know, uh, worker owned models. We understand that capitalism is a farce. Um, I don't have a problem then dispersing uh, a basic income to people to take care of their needs because basically all that currency is, is just exchange tokens. So people can just, you know, get the goods and services they need. Um, what else you got? All right, that's fair. It's fun. <laughs> um, what else? What else you got? <laughs> um, what other important well, issues we are part of your about, platform we didn't that talk we haven't about talked the about? Green Deal. Yeah, let's, okay. Well, uh, well, I mean, I think I think we did kind of cover. You know, I think most legalize it. on no brainer. Yeah. I've been uh, studying marijuana for forty years. Uh, the, the research is in. Uh, it's not right. as bad as alcohol. Thank you much. Uh, next. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in, I support most of what's on the, the Green Party's platform for the Green New Deal. There's a few nuances economically that they have screwed up, you know, uh, some of the banking thing and, and some of those other things. But the Green New Deal is basically just, it's that bold initiative plan that says we've got to tackle climate change. Uh, right. The job guarantee goes hand in hand with the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. It, it, oh, it, they, they sell together. And, um, but I mean, then it, the Green New Deal is where you get into the infrastructure bill, mm-hmm. okay, based on green uh, reconstruction and things like that. And that's where you make that specific investment that will take, you know, uh, crane operators and, right. you know, people like that to do big work like that. Um, uh, what else is in there? I mean, you know, it's sweeping, and it's what we need. It, it, it mimics after uh, FDR's second Bill of Rights, which is exactly what we need. It's the economic Bill of Rights of the 20th century that should have right. been passed back then that never yeah. did. Right. Um, everybody has a right to a decent home. The fight for affordable housing. I'm sick of hearing that because people wouldn't need affordable housing if they could afford housing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, we Period. have we have a really big housing problem now, here in California. It doesn't mean that we don't need. It doesn't mean that we don't need those band aids. But I'm talking about people who are fighting for long term affordable housing, yeah. low income projects, yeah. that kind of stuff. No, oh, yeah. that's economic segregation. What we need to do is we need to, you know, those. Yes, we need to get people off the streets immediately. That's uh, lights flashing, siren going. Okay, 
why people are sleeping on the streets, why people have no food, why they have no shelter or clothes. I have no clue. That doesn't we, we should be an emergency situation right now. Uh, uh, if a soldier goes you, down to the battlefield. Johnny, do you, yeah. cause you know, I don't know um, what the homeless rate is in your state of Minnesota. I would imagine that it's not as severe as it is in California. Um, do you, you know, have a problem? It's severe, but it's increasing. Is it increasing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In Rochester, we've got a homeless issue uh, starting to pop up where, wow. you know, we're starting to see tents. And, and that's 100,000 people. That's and, scary in the and, temperatures yeah. in the winter. How how are people supposed to live in a tent <clears throat> when it's that cold outside? Well, that's the thing. So then you get the Salvation Army opens the doors to people. And, mm-hmm. you know, again... It's it's uh, the system allowing um, nonprofits and volunteerism and charity to do the responsibilities of the government, which they should have. And been, yeah. and that's another thing that must end. I don't. You know, that. if somebody wants to donate to your 2020 campaign, where is the best place for them to do that at? Just go to my website, okay. dot com, and um, uh, whatever I got up there right now because I, I have. Crowd, uh, yeah, crowd pack. Okay. Um, I also have Act Blue, um, but I had to renew that for for this go around, and I don't remember if I actually finished that. That's all right. Um, I, was, try to, I try to. I, I send them to your website. I try to give people to policy too, and you've got a lot of policy platform on yeah. that website, which is refreshing. <laughs>